Professor David Crane joins us. Nice to have you, sir. It's my pleasure. What are the sort of legal aspects of what Israel is planning on doing in terms of a ground invasion? Because there are rules. Uh, there certainly are rules. Uh, in fact, all nations uh, have signed up to uh, uh, what we call the Geneva Conventions, which is a part of a larger body of law, uh, laws of armed conflict, international humanitarian law, which really just governs conduct uh, on the battlefield. So believe it or not, a lot of people don't really realize that the rule of law is involved in all of this. Israel is a signatory to all of this. Uh, the Israeli defense uh, forces are trained. Uh, in the laws of armed conflict. They understand the laws of armed conflict. In large measure, they try to follow the large on the laws of armed conflict. But the bottom line is, is that we also have another combatant, which is bound also by, uh, by the laws of armed conflict, a terrorist group named Hamas, which is not following it. Uh, and so it puts them in a, uh, a delicate balance. The rules essentially are that uh, regardless uh, whether the other side, the other combatant is following the laws or not, you are bound to do so. So Israelis are faced with a combatant who uh, is targeting their civilian objects and civilians. They are trying to respond, but they are responding into the most densely populated part of the world. And so they are targeting military targets, it appears, but they're also, unfortunately, uh, causing a great deal of damage to civilians. Now, I think it's important for your listeners to understand that uh, Israel is losing the information war. Hamas is showing around the world the damage that Israeli ordinance is perpetrating on, on Gaza. Uh, and it is horrific. Uh, and uh, really, no civilians should be targeted or not targeted, but still killed or wounded. That's a horrific situation. Uh, but at the end of the day, Hamas is hiding behind the people of Palestine and Gaza, uh, and forcing the Israelis to what appears to be violating the laws of armed conflict. And uh, it puts them in a uh, no-win situation whatsoever. Is Israel responsible for, not necessarily rehousing, but for those Palestinians who want to get out of the line of fire, is Israel responsible for them? Well, again, going back to our initial discussion, and that is the idea is protection. And so you can lawfully target a military target. But in these dirty little wars of the 21st century, civilians are everywhere, and they look like the combatants in some ways. And so it's the obligation of all parties to the conflict. In this situation, Israel, as well as Hamas, is to try to get civilians out of the combat area. In this situation, it would be the northern portion of Gaza. But civilians are not only to be protected, but also cared for. And under the Geneva Convention 4, which deals with civilians, all the parties have to remove them from the combat area, but they also have to care for them. So this is where uh, the challenge Israel has in its initial decisions is to blockade Gaza, but the appearance is is its intent to harm the civilians as opposed to affect the hostage situation. And this is bad optics for Israel regardless. If you're moving people out, you have an obligation, and really under the United Nations paradigm, all the nations in the area have an obligation uh, to, uh, to try to care for these uh, tens of thousands of displaced persons. But Israel does have an obligation to care for any and all civilians, both in their country, but as well as 
uh, in Gaza to ensure that there are no uh, uh, unnecessary civilian casualties uh, in this situation. But if you're playing by two different sets of rules, I mean, Hamas is not a formal military operation, and they are compelling, apparently, a lot of civilians not to get out of the way, doesn't this necessarily become asymmetrical, that it puts Israel at a tremendous disadvantage if they want to play by the rules? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's a terrible situation. And these, as I call them, these dirty little wars put nation states who are trying to follow the uh, rule of law, even in a combat area, put it at a necessarily disadvantage, because if you're taking on these rebel groups, terrorists, what have you, these non-state actors who choose not to follow uh, their obligations under the laws of armed conflict, it puts them in a terrible disadvantage. But the fundamental rule is, if you're a signatory to these rules and laws, then you have to follow them, regardless of whether the other side is doing so. But Hamas is playing this, they know this, and so they're using this to their advantage in turning the entire tables around. You know, Israel has the has the, uh, the military capacity to destroy them, you know, and take over and move everybody out of the Gaza area, but they but they can't, and they do not want to do that because at the end of the day, that would be that's almost impossible, and it also puts them in a uh, a real serious political problem within the Middle East. But again, Hamas is doing whatever it can to cast the Israelis as the bad guy in this, and uh, actually they're. Uh, uh, they're winning that op- uh, information operation part of the warfare. I, I normally ask the question, how do you see this ending? I don't think it ever ends. But how does this perhaps chapter end in your view? Uh, at this point, it's too uh, early to tell. It's too fuzzy to tell. There's too much dust in the air. Uh, this is going to be this is going to end badly for both sides. And that's a, that's, tra- that's a tragedy. But we still have to use uh, the rule of law to try to in some way lessen uh, the horror of all of this, you know, and I'm a big proponent, truly, in having taken down some of the world's uh, toughest dictators and thugs. But the rule of law is far more powerful than the rule of the gun. There's something very elegant and what would one call it gentlemanly conduct in that, but I'm not sure it's necessarily good for the peace and security of the region. Well, you know, it's interesting. I know the history of mankind is the history of war, and the history of war is the history of mankind. Uh, and uh, none of this is going to end well. Uh, this is, uh, you know, we're looking at uh, a thousand years worth of this. And, uh, you know, this is just a modern manifestation of, of challenges that have been going around in this region for a very, very long time. It's going to take almost an international, worldwide effort to decide to do something about this. I'm just not sure where this, uh, where this is going. And I know that your approach to this is through a legal lens, but I'm also curious about kind of the international balance, because it seems that between this and Russia, Ukraine and Taiwan, China, that the whole world's balance has been upended. It used to be a country would lay its bets with one party or another. Now it seems like everything's up in the air. Excellent point. Uh, You know, we are at an inflection point, just like we were uh, in the 1930s, particularly the late 1930s. We had a true axis of evil. Democracies around the world were facing the likes of Germany, Italy, and Japan. Well, guess what? In 2023, we are facing another axis of evil. We have uh, the Russian Federation. We have China. We have Iran. We have other smaller, minor strongmen around the world who are 
are really disrupting uh, the UN paradigm that was put together in 1945 to avoid all of this. So this is, we are now at the same kind of point where it's democracy and freedom versus tyranny and anarchy. And we have to continue to be bold enough, hopefully, to do the hard things, and that is truly face up to this, not only with the rule of law, but just the practical aspects of diplomacy, and sometimes you just got to hit a dictator right between the eyes with a baseball bat and tell him that's enough. And uh, we have to be bold enough to understand this and do this, uh, or uh, it's going to be a very, very different 21st century than we had considered. Thank you. My pleasure.